Hi, Pastor Anthony here. At Vintage Faith Church, we stand behind the Bible's claim to be the Word of God, and we believe that the Scriptures contain everything needed for life and godliness. The Scriptures testify to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that this recording stirs your faith towards that end. This is in no way meant to be a substitute for the local church gathering, which we believe is critical to your growth as a Christian and your walk with Christ. We pray that you will find the sermon edifying and challenging. Thank you for listening. So we are continuing our uh, series in the parables. And um, today's parable has a bit of context, as Evan just, just read for you. So, and, and then Jesus gives the parable and then kind of unpacks the parable. So not all the parables are unpacked. Not all the parables have this much context. This is somewhat of an unusual parable um, in that regard. But before we go there, I just um, want to kind of throw this out there. You've heard me say this before, but um, I, I do believe that when we think about the market, and when I mean market, I'm talking bookstores, internet, Amazon, wherever you, you know, television, social media, I, I believe that the market, um, probably in the world, but especially in the United States, uh, puts before you and me two types of Christianity. Now, within those two types, I, I think there's all sorts of, of variations. So this is somewhat of an oversimplification, but I believe that it's accurate. And here are the two types. This type, the type that you're going to find on the New York Times bestseller list, the type that you're going to find mainly on television, um, is this. Give your life to Christ and your life will get better. You are loved, you have potential within you, it just needs to be unlocked. Give your life to Christ and your life will get better. Now that's not necessarily all fully false, um, but it's not the whole story. And I, I believe that type of Christianity that, that is often being pushed is actually law and leads to you pushing a boulder uphill that is always going to come crashing down on you. We all love that message. We all want to be motivated. We all want to be inspired. We all want to be told that we are great and we want that pat on the back. But unfortunately, the problem with that is the Bible. If you actually read the Bible, that's not what you're going to get. Um, the other type of Christianity, which is a lot less in your face, is this. Repent of your sins before a holy God and find life and freedom in Christ. And ooh, the world doesn't like that first part. Repent of your sins before a holy God. We want the life and the freedom and the grace, but we don't want to get there truly looking at our heart and our own sin. So I, I, I want, this is going to be in the background of, of the parable today. You're going to hear Jesus' words, so you might be getting a little like bristling at, at mind, but, but you're going to hear it from Christ. 
And, and in fact, you know, we, we heard it last week with the parable of the prodigal son. You're going to just continually hear this in Jesus' teaching. But I would ask you this morning, do you struggle with this idea? When you hear the pastor up here saying, the true Christianity is repent of your sins before a holy God, what happens in your own heart when you hear that? Do you feel anger? Maybe you think, well, that, that's like, uh, that's the street preachers that are out there with signs talking about burning in hell. Maybe you've got a category for that that, that is like you've, you've already kind of heard it and thrown it out saying that's not, the, that's not what's in the Bible. And I, if that's you, I just want to lovingly challenge you to, to rethink that because the Bible doesn't put repentance in front of us is a bad thing. The Bible actually puts repentance in front of us as the way to find life, the way to find the victory that is so often talked about in Christianity. The way to find joy is through repentance. just want to read a quote from Arthur Bennett in the prayer book, Valley of Vision, you've probably heard me pray this and you've probably heard me quote it. But he says, let me learn by paradox. The Christian life is a paradox. It's a paradox in many different ways. That the way down is the way up. That to be low is to be high. That the broken heart is the healed heart that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, to give is to receive, the valley is the place of vision. And this is the paradox of the Christian life. And, it, and for a lot of people, this is a really hard tension to hold. I've had many conversations with people that are just like, I don't want to hear it about my sin, Pastor. I don't want to hear it. I feel condemned when you talk about it. And oh, that breaks my heart because don't stop there. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. None. None at all. And as we're going to see today, oh, how beautiful is, is repentance. Psalm 51 16 to 17, the psalmist says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What does God want us to come to him with? A broken spirit, a contrite, repenting heart. That's what he wants. In fact, that's the only way to come to God. There is no other way to come to God. That's why Jesus is the only way to God. In the 1700s, um, in particular, 1734 and 1735, there was what this country and the history of this country calls the first great awakening. 
1733 to 1736. Um, but there was a man who, who I'm sure you've heard about, Jonathan Edwards, who was a preacher during that time. And he wrote a book, very, very thin volume, about the revival that happened in Massachusetts. I've been in that book for the last couple weeks, and, and one of the things that jumps out to me is people wept over their sin. They were in tears over their sin. The, the whole revival was marked by a spirit of repentance in the churches. In fact, Edwards says this of the public assemblies. He said, our public assemblies were then beautiful. The congregation was alive in God's service. Everyone earnestly intent on the public worship. Every hearer eager to drink in the words of the minister. From time to time, the assembly in general, in general were in tears. While the word was preached, some weeping with sorrow and distress, others with joy and love. This is the mark of true revival. It's also the mark of true revival in your own life. It's a, the mark of true revival in your own life. Do you have a category for this in your faith? Do you have a category for this in your faith? For sorrow over your sin. <clears throat> How about inexpressible joy over your forgiveness? Do you have a category for that? This is what Christ is going to ask you today and me today. This is what he's going to speak into our hearts. So there's going to be three characters in this story. A woman, a woman of the city who was a sinner, most likely a prostitute. Simon, who was a Pharisee, who was the host of this meal. And Jesus. These are the characters in our story, and there's going to be a parable that's going to explain. But I want to, my, my major premise today, and I'm going to throw it out there if you're a note taker, this is the premise that your worship of Christ and your joy in the Christian walk is directly related to your contrite, repentant, humble heart in approaching God. They go together. This modern-day movement of let's, get, let's have a revival and get everyone excited and, and get... That's just man-made emotion. Garbage. I'm sorry, that's garbage. That is not what the Bible shows us about revival. People hear the word of God, they're cut to the heart, and they repent of their sins and they find life and joy. Life and joy. So I put that before you. We put that before our uh, congregation. Can we be a people, a humble, repentant, contrite people? All right, that, that's the introduction. Let's begin um, with the context, which you, you've heard, but we're going to look at the context again. Luke 7. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears 
and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. All right, so we, we've got the, 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 the stage set to our parable. We haven't gone into the parable yet, but, but here we have Simon. He's the distinguished host. He's a Pharisee. Okay, he, bring, he has this banquet. And in, in the day of Jesus, in the Middle East, Palestine, these type of dinners, they were community affairs. So what would happen is they... He would invite the guests, but anyone could show up to the meal and kind of observe, listen to conversation. So you had the whole town coming, and everyone knew about Jesus. So this is a party, a banquet that everyone knows. The man Jesus Christ, the man who has been teaching, the man who has been doing these miracles, Simon is having a party. He's at Simon's house. So you can imagine the whole town just kind of come into to this place and, and you've got just a, a crowd, but you've got a meal going on inside the house. Simon is skeptical. Simon is coming at this, and we, we're going to learn this from the parable. He's not coming at this from someone that really wants to learn about Jesus. I think more likely he's got Jesus on the, on the dock in the judgment, Simon sitting in the judgment seat, and Jesus is being judged. So that is the scene. And if you can imagine, now you have this woman who walks in. It would have been custom in that time. Her hair would have been up. She walks in. You can just imagine the Pharisees whispering, what's she doing here? This woman, we know she's a prostitute. What's she doing here? She shouldn't be here. She walks in, walks up to Jesus, takes her hair down, which would have been scandalous, and begins washing and wiping and kissing his feet. All the righteous men in attendance they're jumping out of their skin. What is going on? James Montgomery Boyce says this. He says, apparently this woman entered in with the other uninvited guests. She would have been noticed, snubbed, scorned. All knew who she was. They did not want her company. But she was not there because they cared for her or she for them. She was there because of Jesus. She loved him and knew that he loved and would forgive her. His love had melted her heart. So as she stood there, she wept for her sin. So most likely she had heard Jesus teach and preach in the area and had come to a conviction of, I know this is the Son of God. I want to worship him. I know he forgives me. And at the cost of her reputation at the cost of being talked about, at 
The cost of every man and woman in that party looking at her like she was less than, she doesn't care and walks right in and right up to Jesus, willing to bear the shame of every eye in that banquet. Would you put yourself in the category of this woman in the sense that it doesn't matter to you what shame you bear, but you want to worship the living Christ, and it doesn't matter what anyone around you thinks. That's one of the things that this woman is teaching us. At all costs, at all reputation, who cares? I'm going in, and I'm going to worship at the feet of Jesus. Or... Are you fearing men more than you fear God? And are you concerned about what people will think? Are you concerned about your reputation when it comes to Jesus? Because we know in our world, Jesus, it's not too cool to, to claim Christ. It's not acceptable in many places to claim Christ. It comes with a cost. It comes with a cost. And I think this woman is, 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 is an illustration in a way showing us, are we willing to bear the cost of our reputation like this woman was? Rosaria Butterfield says, when Christians throw their lot in with Jesus, we lose the rights to protect our own reputation. We lose the rights to protect our own reputation. So we have to think about that. You have to think about that. I have to think about that. All right, let's keep, keep going. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. All right, so this is, this is Simon, again, the host and he's thinking, right, keep in mind when you, when you see those words, he said to himself. Well, he's thinking this. He didn't say it out loud. And he's got two premises. Simon has two, two premises here. If this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman is. So that's actually correct. If this man is a real prophet, he will perceive that this woman, he will know where she's been, what she's done, and who she is. That's his first premise, and he is right. But Simon's second premise is, if he knew this, then he would cast this woman out of his presence, away from him. And here's where Simon is wrong. Simon has a misunderstanding about his, himself, about the woman, and about who Jesus is. This should bring the words of Christ to, to our minds. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Have you come to Jesus? Have you really come to Jesus? He will not cast you away, no matter how sinful you are, no matter what you have done, he will not cast you away. But our inclination always is, yeah, but I've got this thing that I've done and it's, it's in my heart and Jesus would be repulsed by it. 
So we, we wouldn't say it, but we kind of functionally can work sometimes like, oh, well, he will cast me away if he, he knew this. And again, all we need to do is to look at this woman, a woman of the city, most likely a prostitute, and Jesus is not casting her away in any way. John Bloom says, as Simon watched the woman pour fragrant oil from her jar on Jesus' feet, he felt both contempt and pleasure. His appraisal of Jesus was being vindicated before his eyes. So he, Simon's probably thinking, I knew it, I knew it, I brought this guy over my house, I'm giving him dinner, I knew he was a fraud, I knew he was a charlatan, I knew it, and look at this, this proves it, he is literally letting a prostitute wash his feet. That's what's probably going through Simon's head. So he's feeling contempt towards this situation, but pleasure. He's right, right? We all like to be right. Oh, I knew it. I was right. I was right. Nothing spoke more of the falseness of this so-called prophet than his stunning lack of discernment regarding this immoral woman. No holy man would have let her pollute him with her touch. He began to rehearse what he would report to the council. So again, this is our backdrop. We're not even into the parable yet, but this is what's going on. Simon is really getting amped up now. Oh, I knew it. I knew I was right. So we're going to start with the parable, but before we start, again, take note on this. Simon said to himself all these things. He didn't say them out loud. And we're going to hear Jesus answer his thoughts. Jesus is going to answer Simon's thoughts. Luke 7, 40 to 43, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. So a denarii is a day's wage. So you've got one guy, 50, so say a month, a little more than a month. And then one guy, 500, a little more than a year. Cancels the, the guy that had the debt of a little more than a year's wages. And we come to the conclusion that man is more thankful. That man will love the money lender more. That's Jesus' point. This is a natural human idea. Um, over the last 18 years, Amy and I, and, and one of my kids, and, and it's been at least three out of the four, we have ended up in the ER multiple times for multiple different reasons. And um, every time we leave the ER, Amy and I have, are always thankful for, for doctors and hospitals and medical care, like every, every time. However, that gratitude rises and ebbs and flows, rises and sinks, depending on how nervous we were and concerned we were entering the ER. I can remember one time um, 
uh, Autumn had broke her arm, and it was a bad break. I mean, we're talking forearm, like almost 90-degree angle, and I had never seen anything like it. I had never broken bones as, as a child. Um, and just to go into the ER and to have doctors just come around her and fix that arm and, and put it, bandage it up and do all that, you just leave like rejoicing, like thank God, thank God, what if we didn't have that? So Jesus is getting that at that basic human tendency. If many of you, if you've been in a financial difficulty and then all of a sudden you, you came in to some money or your situation with finances got better, you know you appreciate that money. You love it. You are thankful in a way that you wouldn't have been if you didn't go through the hardship. So this is what Jesus is getting at here with this um, parable. But we, we don't stop here. I just kind of want to set the table. This is... This is it. He's saying, okay, there's two debts. Simon, who's more thankful? And Simon's like, okay, definitely the guy um, with the 500 denarii. He's going to be more thankful. And Jesus says, you're right. You're right, Simon. We keep moving. Luke 7, 44 to 46. Then turning towards, toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. So we have Jesus now. He's pulling out a contrast, and he's going to begin... Um, He's, he's contrasting Simon's behavior to the woman's behavior. So it was customary in that time when, when uh, guests would come into your home, you would have a servant wash the feet of the people coming into your home because most likely their feet were dusty and they were in sandals. Simon didn't do this, or his servants didn't do it for Jesus. There was no kiss given that was customary to come into the home. And no oil for his head. That oil would have been olive oil, very cheap in, in, in this place and in time. But then each one of these is contrasted with the woman. You didn't even give me water for my feet, but her tears are washing my feet. You didn't give me a kiss on the head, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't give me the olive oil for my head, but she took expensive ointment and put it on my feet. And Jesus is just showing, you, you've shown no lack of, of care or, or love or honor for me as your guest. John Bloom says this of, of Simon. Again, remember, Simon is a Pharisee. He's, he is a lover of the scriptures, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the Holy One of Israel. And, and Bloom says this, he had the Holy One of Israel in his house, reclining at his table. The prophet that Moses had foretold was sharing dinner with him, the Lord of glory. 
the resurrection and the life was speaking with him face to face. The great climactic moment of history he claimed to be living for had arrived. It should have been a deliriously wonderful, breathtaking honor for Simon to host the Messiah, but Simon was not amazed. In fact, Simon is standing in judgment of Christ. We have to ask this of our own hearts. I ask this of of you. You hear the words of Christ. You hear them today. You hear them every Sunday. Do you stand amazed? Or are those words, eh, may, eh, okay, it's Bible, move on. Do you stand in judgment of Christ? And no one would say that in here. No one would say, I stand in judgment of Christ. But when we read his words and read the Bible and we say, I got a better way than than him. We're standing in judgment of Christ. When we hear plain scripture that, that says you should live like this, but then we go and live like that, we're standing in judgment of Christ. I believe there, there, we can boil down three reactions when I think of this parable to, to Jesus. And, and I want you to try to um, think, where, where do you lean in, in the, these three types of people? Okay? And, and I think we're, we're all going to probably find ourselves at different times in different categories. But the thrust of your life, like what you, the trajectory of your life, where do you find yourself? Here's category n- number one. You don't really have a deep understanding of your sin. You, you, when I opened the sermon and talked about sin, you would probably be in that category, like, okay, stop talking about that. The Bible's much more about sin, Pastor. I don't want to hear about sin. When I hear about sin, all that happens is I feel condemned, um, so you, you, you've never really went there. And you might not even consider yourself a sinner. Think back to last week, the parable of the, the prodigal son, the older brother. He did everything right. But he was still left outside of the feast. Because sin is much more than licentiousness and doing what we want. So that's category one. Maybe you need to be led into a deep under, understanding of your own heart in your own sin, so that you can have a deeper understanding of God's grace and his love. Two go together. Again, the two go together. Your worship of Christ and your understanding of your own heart and your sin go together. If you take sin out of the equation and say, I don't want that part of the Bible, I just want to worship God through Christ because he loves me, you have just short-circuited the very thing that God pours on you to allow you to worship. And that, again, is the Christianity that's being offered on the New York Times bestseller list, on television. That is what's being offered. Forget about Friday and the cross. Go right to Sunday and the resurrection. Don't think about the cross. Go right to Sunday and I Submit to you, that is death. It leads to death. It leads to a joyless faith where you can't worship. You can't worship short-circuiting 
the cross. You just can't. The second category. Some of you are deeply in tune with your own heart and your own sin. You don't need me to stand up here and tell you, but you have a hard time moving from that to grace. And I've talked to, to some of you, and I've talked to, to many people, and, and I know that there's a person who gets stuck here. Like, okay, stop talking about sin. I don't want to hear about my own heart. I just feel condemned. And again, if you're feeling condemned, you're not moving far enough. There's no condemnation in Christ. The whole reason for the cross is because of this. So that's a, a second category. And if that's you, I would just say meditate, read Romans 8. Read the whole thing. Just think through Romans 8 and read it. And then there's a third category of people in here. You have seen your sin. God has shown you your sin. And you've experienced the overwhelming forgiveness and grace and love of Christ. And you worship the Lord in that. You can sit here on a Sunday and stand and worship and be moved by songs about Christ and songs about the cross because you know in your own heart that is you. And ultimately, this is where the victory in the Christian life lies. This is where the victory is. To be brought low is to be raised up. To be humbled is to be exalted. The victory is in this paradox. The victory is in this paradox. The contrite heart, the repentant heart, the sorrowful heart, coming to Jesus just like this woman, leading us to worship, to adoration, to thanksgiving, and it's ultimately freedom and victory. And I would just, again, I say, beware of the teaching that tries to take you to the victory before going to the cross. This woman was the most joyous, free woman in this banquet, and she was weeping at the feet of Christ. These are tears of joy. These are tears of joy. They're not tears of sorrow. They, they're mixed, probably, sorrow and joy, but they're predominantly tears of joy. She was holding nothing back, and everyone in this dinner was looking at her in judgment, holding nothing back. And Jesus holds this up. As th this, is, this is how you respond to me. I would ask you this morning, when it comes to the worship of Jesus, are you holding back? Are you holding back? Are you more like Simon, sitting and standing in judgment of Christ, or are you more like the woman just falling at the feet of Jesus and giving it all to him? Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. That is what this woman is doing. She is drawing near to Jesus in confidence. She's walking into a party with all 
the, 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 the power people in, in, in the culture, all the people that are going to look on her and say, you're nothing. And she walks in with absolute confidence and falls at the feet of Jesus and weeps. Don't fall for this verse being interpreted as arrogance. We can lay hold of the claim and, and claim it with our words, the, the victory, and, and this is the revivalism of our day, and it's not confidence, it's arrogance. Confidence, approaching God in confidence is what we see in this woman at this meal. Are you holding back? Maybe the Lord is talking to you about baptism. Maybe you haven't been baptized as a, a believer. Maybe that's where you're holding back. Maybe you're in here and you don't really like to sing in church. It might feel weird and maybe that's where you're holding back. Maybe it's obedience and you know the scriptures say one thing, but you're like, I'm going to do this anyway. Where are you holding back? We have a picture in today's parable of a woman who did not hold back. She did not hold back. So this is what Jesus says of, of this woman. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus is not saying that we're going to love him more the more we sin. That's, that's not his picture here. What he's actually saying and what he's getting to the bottom of is when we realize that we are a sinner, we will worship him and love him. And Simon is standing in his own righteousness, and you in your own righteousness cannot have Christ. He will not have you in your righteousness. It's only in his. Second Corinthians 7 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So here's what, if, if you're in here and you're pushing back in your mind against what I'm saying and preaching, maybe, just maybe, your view of, of repentance and what Paul would call grief here is a worldly view. Because that produces death. It does. it does. It's no good for you to stand and, and say, I'm terrible. I'm, I'm, that's not what's happening here. That's not what I'm pre... If you're hearing that, you're hearing me wrong. I am not saying that. What I am saying is what Paul said, for godly grief, that's godly repentance, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It leads to life. Rosaria Butterfield says of repentance, there's only one thing to do when you meet the living God. You must fall on your face and repent of your sins. 
I learned the first rule of repentance, that repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. I think that churches would be places of greater intimacy and growth in Christ if people stopped lying about what we need, what we fear, what we fail, and see, and how we sin. So focus in on that one quote. Repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. If you're unwilling to repent, you desire and want that sin more than communion, intimacy with God. Repentance requires greater intimacy with God. Now here's the catch. We think that the sin is going to make us happy, but the reality is the intimacy with God is what we need and what we really truly want and what's going to give us life and joy and worship. But we're still buying the lies of Satan in the garden and thinking that now God is withholding this one thing from me and I want to keep doing this one thing because it makes me happy and he's withholding and that's the lie of Satan. It's been the lie from Genesis. It's still the lie that he is telling you today and telling me today. Have you experienced the intimacy with God through repentance? You might not be the woman of the city You might not have this in your background, but we are all sinners and we need to come clean with God. And we have to know, too, that our our hearts naturally want to block this. We want to justify our sin and we want to defend ourselves when in actuality we're going to find life by confessing, repenting, and being cleansed. This is first, first John chapter 1. So today's parable, this is a parable which is an account of two people. Both of them came to, to the meal as sinners. Simon is a sinner. The woman is a sinner. Both of them are in the same place. Both of them at the same time. Both of them hearing the same words of the living Christ, the Holy One of Israel but only one left the party worshiping the living Christ. Only one left the party right with God. Only one left restored and free as a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Have you fallen at the feet of Jesus in worship? If you haven't, why not? Why not? Give your life to him. He wants you. He will not cast you out. Give your life to Christ. If you don't know how to do that, there's people here that that would gladly um, talk to you about it. What is holding you up? We're about to take communion, the Lord's Supper. And it's a a fitting passage to to take communion to. Um, We would ask if, if you do not call Christ Lord, if you do not call him Savior, 
that you just pass. This is, there's no magic in, in the bread and in the juice, but this active communion, the Lord's Supper, is for his people. It's for his children. The Lord's Supper is one of the covenant signs in the new covenant. The other is baptism. These are two signs that God has given us to show the gospel, to show the gospel. We are embodied souls. And it, so we have a body that tastes and touches and, and a soul within our body. And God, all throughout the Bible, gives these covenant signs that can be tasted, touched, smelled, heard. He speaks to us where we're at in physical things. The Apostle Paul says this, he says in, of communion, in the same way, also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as often as we do this, Paul is saying we are actually proclaiming his death. We're looking back to the cross until he comes. We're actually looking forward to him coming again. Thanks for tuning in with us. We hope that you found this sermon edifying, encouraging, and challenging. To learn more about Vintage Faith Church, visit vintagefaithcicero.com. And of course, if you live in the area, we invite you to worship the Lord with us on Sunday mornings.